Good afternoon, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a real pleasure for me today to introduce Professor Joe Kanatachi to you. If I may start with a personal remark, uh, Joe is one of my personal heroes and one of my role models when it comes to how to combine uh, interest in IT-related legal matters and practical work and academic work. He's really an outstanding academic. Uh, Joe is Maltese by origin and therefore inter alia working um, on Malta um, at the University of Malta, where he is the head of the Department of Information Policy and Governance, which would probably be enough for a life for an average person. But on top of this, he puts a second academic, um, and a, a second academic position, which is um, a chair of European Information Policy and Technology Law at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. So that's already probably the double amount of work normal people would uh, be able to deal with. But on top of this, uh, apart from several other academic positions I'm not really mentioning here, such as a junk professor at the Security Research Institute and uh, at the School of Computer and Security Science at Edith Cohen University in Australia. So that's just a little detail. Apart from all these details and those two academic jobs, um, he's uh, uh, he is the Special Rapporteur on the Right to Privacy, and this is the main reason uh, why I'm very, very proud to have him here with us, because Joe is not only, not only an academic and not only one of the most influential uh, thinkers when it comes to European privacy law, but he is also one of the very few of the academics whose opinion really does have an impact on an international level in his role as a UN Special Rapporteur. And I'm really proud and happy to have the privilege to um, have been working with him now for, I don't know how many years, 15 or so, uh, in, in different research projects and in different roles. And it's really a highlight for me to have you now in this role here. And I'm also very, very happy about this because I do know that you are rather reluctant in uh, video presence on social networks and on the on on the open internet. So I take this as a huge privilege and as a gesture of friendship, and I really appreciate this. Joe, so happy to have you here. How are you today? Thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Nicolaus. Uh, thank you for your very kind introduction. Well, it's uh, it's been just another day in uh, uh, self-imposed uh, isolation and social distancing. You know. Um, I am glad on the one hand to be spending more time with my family in Malta than I would normally do. But that being said, um, COVID-19 has also generated so much work on the privacy front that um, it's a, a curse in many ways, uh, especially uh, when we think of all those uh, poor people who have uh, lost their lives or been terribly struck down with it and their families too. But at the same time, on the privacy front, it has generated a lot of serious concerns, but also a lot of work for my UN mandate. Yes, and are you focusing mainly on your uh, UN perspective at the moment, or is it more the European hat that you take, or is it the Maltese hat, or do you try to distinguish this? Um, it's, it's never possible to really take off your UN hat. Right? Mm -hmm. So let's start with that. For as long as for as long as one wears a UN hat, um, you have to be uh, very careful that um, you uh, not only maintain the integrity, which is normal to a scientist and an academic, but also that um, you do not stray from your mandate, right? So mm -hmm. uh, my mandate 
is privacy and all things connected with privacy. And there may be many other things about which I may have an opinion, but for as long as I hold the mandate, I don't, uh, I don't, I try not to express my personal opinion uh, in public about things not related to the mandate. That being said, um, it's uh, not, uh, it's not also easy to um, just stick to one country. In fact, <clears throat> what COVID-19 means is that um, as UN Special Rapporteur, I always have 193 countries to deal with, right? Mm. Um, Europe to me is where I come from and like Malta is home, but um, it just offers me another 27 countries or 47 countries, depend whether I'm talking about the EU or the Council of Europe. Um, the Council of Europe with its 47 countries gives me not only one context, but also especially perhaps one of the benchmarks. And one of the benchmarks that I uh, try to apply every new day that we see brings with it new measures. Some government in Europe, outside Europe, is taking new measures to try and fight COVID-19. And that means that uh, what is the benchmark? What is the metric that we apply to those measures? And this is where I find the Council of Europe's uh, wording in the Data Protection Convention, Convention 108, so useful. Because whether it's Article 9 of the old convention, as it were, or Article 11 of new uh, the Convention 108 plus the modernized convention, which was open, I opened for signature in October of 2018. <clears throat> there, what do we notice? There we notice one very important thing um, that you have the provision which says for a measure to be taken, it must be authorized by law, it must be necessary, uh, must have, not just nice to have, and proportionate in a democratic society. Now, very often, whether it was Europe, you asked me, Nicolaus, about Europe or the EU or Malta, um, the, it's not only Europe which is bound by that. There are now 55 member states, including Argentina and Uruguay and Tunisia and Senegal, other countries which have uh, signed up to Convention 108, and there are 15 other countries which are observers. So 70 uh, countries out of the UN's 193 countries um, meet regularly to discuss these standards. These standards have normally been discussed more in the context of security and surveillance and uh, national security and law enforcement. But it's actually exactly the same standard which applies to a public health situation. If you take a measure which infringes on privacy, is it necessary, is it proportionate in a democratic society? Yeah, yeah. So interestingly, uh, very often when I talk to you, Joe, uh, you are emphasizing the importance of the Council of Europe in comparison with what the European Union is doing. Um, and when it now comes to um, uh, COVID-19, uh, you, you might have seen, certainly you have seen that uh, the European Commission has become rather active in particular last week and now ongoing when it comes to, and, and even before that uh, already, uh, when it comes to privacy related matters of this, uh, of this um, uh, terrible development that we see all over in the European countries. How would you put uh, the role of the Council of Europe in this debate at the moment? Are they as active as the European Commission is, or are they more reluctant and trying to identify the issues better before becoming active? Well, <clears throat> I, 
I welcome the role of the EU too, right? Yes. Um, but let's be careful to put it in context. Um, we, we must not put the daughter before the mother. Yes. Right? Mm. Um, the EU is very much the daughter in this situation. Um, the, um, the EU and its data protection directive of 1995, as well as the GDPR, which came, the General Data Protection Regulation, which came into force in May of 2018, all the principles there are in fact derived from the work of the Council of Europe. Yes. And let's remember that <clears throat> all 27 members of the EU are also members of the Council of Europe. So it's not as if these are two competing clubs. No, these are, uh, one is a subset of the other and the principles remain the same. Yeah. Um, the, the difference largely is of course that the GDPR has given now a framework on which one can add more meat, as it were. Um, and yeah. the, when, it comes, when it comes to the kind of regulations that you see, the EU obviously um, has the ability because of the regulations to, because of the GDPR, to come up with initiatives which try to keep the countries on the right track within the existing framework. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, we see, for example, an appeal made by the Commission uh, and, the, and the EDPS and all the other EU bodies, which are generally going into a line which I cannot but agree with, which is, listen, if new apps, for example, if new apps are going to be introduced in order to um, facilitate contract, contact tracing, as a matter of principle, those should be based on informed and explicit consent, which is another way of saying it should be a voluntary approach. But there are countries out there, outside the EU, outside the Council of Europe, although they may sometimes participate in some of their activities, which have gone a different route. And I think it's worth looking not only just inside the European continent, as it were, but also outside it in order to learn lessons of what we should be thinking about, yeah. uh, but also what we should be excluding. Um, and I think that um, it would be very interesting to see and broadly categorize the measures which states have taken into two. Mm -hmm. Those measures which involve the consent of the citizen and those measures which come to contact tracing where whether the citizen or like it, likes it or not, he or she is going to be followed uh, around by the state. Mm -hmm. And that is a situation for serious concern. Absolutely. I completely agree with this, Joe. However, um, I mean, one of the lessons we learned so far, I think, from the situation in countries like Singapore or Hong Kong or Israel is that if you keep uh, contact tracing on a voluntary level, even in those countries, uh, the acceptance rate is relatively low. So something about 20% or so of the population agrees in, uh, in using those apps. And at the same time, uh, experts uh, argue that you would need 60 to 70% of the population participating in those apps uh, in order to, uh, to make them useful. 
Um, and, and that is the argument uh, why some politicians, in my view at least, argue that uh, a simply voluntary basis is not sufficient, and then the whole debate about fundamental rights and, and the importance of the right to privacy and so on starts. And then we end up in a situation where some countries argue, okay, then let's put it on a voluntary level, and then the, the circle is closed, because again, it only produces 20% of acceptance rate re-initiating uh, the debate about whether or not to uh, make this a legal obligation. My feeling of the situation in Europe at the moment is, is that we are in the middle of this circle. So many European countries at the moment argue, let's put it on a voluntary basis, not really thinking about um, whether that might suffice, and also not really being very clear about what this whole exercise is for. Would you share that assessment? Well, yes, I, I think I think that I would uh, share uh, the assessment also because um, I suspect that many politicians, many policy makers, many people who need to take the decisions are in exactly the same position that you and I are, which mm -hmm. is we would like to move on an evidence base. But at this moment in time, we do not have, I repeat, we do not have sufficient evidence to show that um, increased surveillance to contact tracing, especially of mobile devices, is a necessary um, measure and that it is a proportionate measure. In fact, this is why, um, insofar as my UN mandate is concerned, um, I have decided to divide my approach into two. I'll explain that a bit later, but let me come back to what I mean by not enough evidence. Mm -hmm. So what is the metric that we are going to use in order to determine whether something is necessary and proportionate, right? Is it the number of infections? Is it the number of deaths? Is it the number of uh, recovery and the period of recovery? Mm -hmm. Because if I were to take the number of deaths and the number of recovery expressed as uh, a percentage of the number of infections, then I can see no basis for any form of surveillance because um, Germany, um, Austria, Malta, I'm just mentioning some of the countries with which I am familiar, which I have been following, mm -hmm. have amongst the lowest number of deaths and the lowest number of, uh, and the lowest number of um, uh, uh, other problem cases um, mm. expressed as a percentage of infections. Now, this is the problem where we are going to need at least the next year, at least this, these coming 12 months, to understand the confounding variables. Because um, when you look at measures which have been taken, mm. they, you can never look at the metrics and the figures that I have just mentioned in isolation. You need to look at them together with other measures. It is absolutely useless mm. to follow everybody every day if you don't test. So mm. the availability of testing is at least as important, if not much, 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 much more important than following people around. And if you notice, what is the great difference between Germany and other countries and Malta and other countries is that they tend to do much more testing than other people, 
and they tend to do the tracing with other people uh, than uh, many other countries. Mm -hmm. Now, that is not to say that we may not have something to learn by looking at specific cases. And the case I have, perhaps more than Singapore, is actually Korea, South Korea. Mm -hmm. um, the Korean experience is one which I'm currently studying in some detail at present, because there they actually thought about privacy five years ago when they, they um, suffered uh, another respiratory uh, uh, disease, mm -hmm. which was the Middle Eastern SARS, um, which uh, hit them pretty badly in 2015. And they that is where they plan their strategy. Now, I'm not endorsing the strategy, and neither am I rubbishing it. All I am saying is that <clears throat> back in 2015, they thought out a strategy where they would have massive testing hmm. together with um, the use of apps and the temporary and interim renunciation uh, and, and the temporary infringement on privacy through very detailed contact tracing. And, and here is where the problem uh, which we need to look at, which I'm looking at in greater detail, is what happens when you end up naming and shaming, I'm using the term uh, a bit loosely here, but by identifying where somebody has been, you are infringing their privacy, especially if sometimes the data you're revealing also relates to their sexual life to other interests in life. And um, we have seen um, uh, rather ugly cases of uh, naming and shaming in Korea, which I'm looking at. Um, but does this mean that the Koreans have been able to keep down the, um, the rate of infection and the mortality rate? Yes, but once again, we need to look at that figure in the round. And I think what, uh, you and I will be doing in a year's time is we'll be looking at the evidence to see um, what were the figures overall, what were the measures taken, and to what measures can you ascribe the greatest success. And if in that case it turns out that surveillance um, and contact tracing using technology, especially uh, mobile phone apps or even not having an app but simply being traced through uh, other forms of location tracing, then we'll be able to say this was necessary, this was proportionate, or no, the metrics that we have chosen have shown us that they are not necessary or proportionate. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, there are so many, so many important points in your, your, your remark here. The first one is obviously uh, any app is uh, in, in, in a kind of competition for resources with all different other measures which are less intrusive, including uh, the obligation to wear masks or to, to do more testing or to, uh, to stay uh, more intensely at home and so on. Uh, and it's very hard to justify at the moment um, and to assess at the moment which of those are really useful. Uh, in particular, because it's not even clear yet, at least for me, what exactly the final goal of all this is, right? I mean, obviously, the goal is not to have too many patients in the ICUs of the hospitals, but uh, how to achieve this 
uh, ultimate goal is very unclear and, and there are very different approaches um, on this uh, in the different countries in the world at the moment. And I find it very, very, as an academic already, I find it very stressful and very challenging to identify what exactly a specific government would, would wish to do in a specific scenario. And in your shoes, I think it must be even much, much worse, not only because you are not in the position to monitor just one country, but also because you are not only watching at this as an academic, uh, having an, an independent opinion, but you are watching at this as, as an important player in the game, uh, which makes it very difficult. I, I would therefore, if I may kindly ask with all due respect, how you manage this. I mean, the, what exactly is the, 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 the workforce, a UN Special Rapporteur, may rely on in order to get all this done at the moment? Well, you've hit a sore point there, Nicolaus. Mm -hmm. I mean, insofar as workforce is concerned, um, not only is uh, the UN Special Rapporteur somebody who is not paid, but yes. who is granted one, one and a half people to work uh, on, on the on the mandate, insofar as people who know anything about privacy is concerned. Um, not only that, let me be frank, at this moment in time, uh, um, an edict has just gone out in the UN because of lack of funds to even stop recruiting or halting contracts, etc. So the, the, um, the position is not an easy one. Um, you might have heard me say before, but you know, it obviously shows my age and my generation. As the Beatles would say, I get by with a little help from my friends. Um, in other words, as, as the song goes, you know, I recruit widely for volunteers and people who can work and are prepared to contribute to the subject on various areas. And I try to bring those people together in task forces. Um, you, you have seen that work yourself because you were kind enough to share the, uh, my task force on medical data. And once they get working together, um, I find that with a mixture of volunteers and the little paid help that I have, we manage to come out with documents which people around the world tell us are useful. And what we are trying to do is set standards. So uh, we continue to work, uh, obviously, on surveillance uh, in the broadest term, uh, you know, broadest sense of the term, but also on uh, children and privacy, on um, gender and privacy, on which I have just uh, published a set of recommendations, um, and also on prisoners and privacy, because, you know, life must go on. There will be life after COVID-19. It may be slightly different or quite a bit different, but uh, some of the old issues will not go away. Um, the old issues which existed before COVID-19 um, will uh, remain with us and we still have to find a solution. So I see my role um, to uh, build bridges between the various communities, between the various stakeholders, um, and from that dialogue, trying to root it very deeply in reality, in the reality of the current situation, um, to be able to come up with good practices which are shared. So, as you know, over the past uh, three, four years, uh, we have produced uh, recommendations on big data and open data. We've produced um, recommendations on 
privacy and medical data, health-related data, we produced uh, that was uh, in October of last year, 2019. In March of this year, we produced recommendations on privacy and gender-related data. And as I've said, we're continuing to work on privacy and children and privacy and uh, prisoners. Uh, but um, if we take, for example, COVID-19, yes, certainly. Uh, my next report to the General Assembly, which is due in October of this year, which means I have to finish it around July in order for it to be translated, etc., will focus on the link between surveillance and COVID-19. Um, but I also expect that to be just part one. I expect there to be at least a part two and possibly a part three. As I said before, um, I'm looking forward to this time next year to being able to come up with um, uh, a more detailed report about COVID-19 and more detailed recommendations on that subject. Yeah, but I mean, if if you if you say that you write a report about surveillance and COVID nineteen on an international level, this is probably the most uh, the most demanding topic I would imagine in the whole privacy debate that we have at the moment because it brings together issues of policing, secret services, uh, private industry, health, um, health, public policies, and all this on an international level with. Uh, I mean, with resources as you described them, um, ending up then in a paper um, as good as possible, obviously. Uh, but 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 I, I personally find it very very challenging then to 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 produce the necessary impact out of all this, right? So uh, um, it's 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 I, I I have really problems in understanding that the UN. Uh, I mean, we are talking about the UN now. <laughs> Uh, has a UN Special Rapporteur for the Right to Privacy with 1.5 people full-time working for this person. Uh, so I, there is an obvious discrepancy here between the size of the task and and the size of the workforce. Um, totally. Uh, totally. And, I mean, every average local company has three, four, 15 people working on privacy, just, you know, the, the average retailer in any given country. <coughs> And at the same time, we have one and a half people supporting someone who is trying to solve the world's most challenging and demanding problems when it comes to IT and privacy and the law. So I, I, well, I'm, let, let I'm struggling me, let me explain, with this. Let's put it let like this. Yeah. Bit, let me explain a bit more. Yeah. Happily, happily, um, we don't come to the task unprepared. Let me explain that. Um, so yes, you mentioned all the work that uh, one needs to deal with, with the intelligence services and the law enforcement, etc. Um, but into that, we managed to feed um, not only 35 years of my teams, my other teams, um, my team at the University of Malta, my team at the University of Groningen, colleagues like yourself. Um, we have put in not only 35 years of experience, but 35 years of build-up on understanding how law enforcement and surveillance work, mm -hmm. how the intelligence, um, uh, the intelligence um, services work. We also should be grateful to all the many projects, for example, that the European Commission has supported us in. Um, 
all the uh, 10 years, 10 years worth of projects. Now we're talking here of more than 15 million euro, right? Um, went into the smart project on smart surveillance, on the respect project, on the mapping project. And in fact, I was very grateful to the European Commission that they accepted that some of the work on the mapping project be formally conjoined with that of my mandate as UN Special Rapporteur, because we were investigating the same subjects and discussing the same issues, discussing the same problem. And I, um, you know, just hold that a good idea is a good idea is a good idea, wherever the idea comes from, wherever it springs from. Also, I have found that if one marshals one's um, resources intelligently, um, then one can uh, one can work better. So, uh, one of the ways that we managed to do this is in the following. Firstly, um, we use online extensively. So, um, a desk, a desk, uh, desk research, um, very quickly is translated into an online consultation, mm. and people get invited to contribute to the online consultation. <clears throat> then, I am fortunate that. Some countries like Germany and uh, South Korea have been generous by providing a little bit of money to the mandate for us to spend on things like consultations. So what do we do? That means we, in, we then, after an online consultation, we hold a, an in-person consultation. And while everybody who can afford it pays for it to come to it, um, NGOs and others, we use the funds, the tiny amount of funding that I have from some member states in order to pay for them to come to the in-person consultation. And we make the most of it. So in that way, um, as you yourself saw in the, uh, in the um, case of medical-related data, right, a field which I personally have been working in for more than 30 years, I was actually chair of the Council of Europe's Committee of Experts on Data Protection in the 90s when we piloted Recommendation 97.5 of the Council of Europe on Privacy, Data Protection and Medical Data. Um, and what do we do there? So once again, um, using, using uh, friendship, literally friendship, with, in this case, the Council of Europe, you know, we then convened a meeting in Strasbourg hosted by the Council of Europe in order to try and get people together. Uh, and we had people from more than 50 countries who, who came and contributed to the debate. You will recall that we received, what was it, 943, 948 different suggestions for amendments. So um, while uh, on paper it may look uh, very little to have 1.5 people, I actually have a lot of volunteers from around the world who contribute, which we then use in an intelligent way in a consultation process, which often takes two years, two and a half years. This is not Joe Kanatachi uh, waking up at six in the morning saying, ah, well, this is what I'm going to write down in my recommendations. No, those recommendations are very carefully researched. They're very carefully consulted about. And as much as possible, we take people into account. So, and I'll give you an example. When it came to surveillance, we didn't just uh, produce, you know, 40 pages of recommendations on surveillance 
out of thin air. We involved secret services. We involved the intelligence agents. Uh, we involved the lawyers from the secret services. One of the things which helps greatly is this forum, which I have created, called the International Intelligence Oversight Forum, IIOF, which once again, I depend uh, on governments helping me. But up till mm -hmm. now, once a year, every year, I found a, a government which was able to host the event, right? Which brings together practitioners from intelligence services. So in addition to this, you add all the country visits that I do um, as UN Special Rapporteur. Um, and whether it's an official country visit, and I only do two of those every year, which are paid by the UN, or an official country visit, somebody else pays for it, um, whether it's the government of that country or some uh, data protection authority, and, and I do 15 or 20 of those every year on top of the two official ones. That means that when COVID-19 comes along, I know a lot of the problems that the intelligence services have on a daily basis. Mm. I know the systems of surveillance they can put in place. So onto that, onto that knowledge base that we have created for the mandate over the past five years, but for the privacy community over the past 35 years in our case, um, we just add the latest layer of problems and issues and solutions and then we try to apply the rest of the knowledge base to come up with a sensible and equitable approach. Yeah, uh, good. I mean, I, I understand that approach and I, I fully share your approach. Uh, however, uh, being one of the authors of the, uh, of the recommendation that you uh, kindly mentioned already twice, which is on the uh, privacy and health related matters, um, because you wrote a, a report on this last year and I was lucky enough and privileged enough to try to support you a little bit with this. I, I constantly ask myself a question at the moment, which is, has anybody read this uh, who is uh, uh, in, in the position to decide on whether or not to introduce uh, an app uh, that uh, surveys people uh, on a daily basis uh, because of the uh, COVID-19 crisis? And my feeling, my gut feeling is uh, not always everyone who should have read this document or any other document which is about um, surveillance plus data protection plus health, uh, not all of those people who should have read this document or any other document have read it. So the question I have on this is, what about the impact of all what, what you are doing um, as a rapporteur or what people like you and me are doing as an academic? Do you think that we have a problem here in both roles in in, in, in making people understand what we are talking about? Well, I don't wish to sound too lawyerly in my, in my answer, mm. but the answer is yes and no. Um, mm. le let me start by... You it know, depends, right? So, <laughs> well, let's, yeah. let's start. Look, um, I don't think that you and I are ever, ever going to be satisfied with impact achieved uh, because we would like to achieve so much. Um, that being said, uh, let me give you a few examples from the last 12 months, right? Have I had countries um, request copies and follow-up of the medical data recommendation? Yes. Mm. Have some hospitals in some countries 
been and have the data protection officers in some countries been reading those and trying to implement the recommendation that we both contributed to yes um has the has the work we have done on surveillance been of an impact yes i have had last year alone at least two or three um two or three uh heads of secret services from around the world not not the lawyers but the heads of the secret services who asked me to um to help them with the implementation of those principles if we look at for example um the impact of a country visit um i visited argentina uh, argentina at the end of may 2019 by the 20th of june 2019 the supreme court of argentina had taken some of my recommendations and included them in the new guidelines for surveillance issue mm-hmm. um, so yes they uh, the uh, the work we do can have a tremendous impact especially in starting to persuade governments to do the right things mm-hmm. on the other hand of course you're right that some of the people who should be reading the stuff we produce are not mm-hmm. but that has always been the case right um i remember way back you know 20 years 25 years uh seeing uh developing um, legal instruments for the council of europe and then uh, and then trying to see whether the people in the ministries implementing those have ever read them and it's not the first time that i would ask somebody from for example a ministry of health have you read recommendation 975 no and you're responsible for implementing it but let me twist that tail around right um because it's a culture creep right not a function creep a culture creep what happens is this if you initiate a discussion as we had and Jean-Luc Bonnicher myself published the paper on this in 1995 um in europe we started the process of rethinking medical data protection in 1990 we must remember that the medical data protection recommendation was the very first one in europe 1980 right mm-hmm. so 10 years later 1990 we started saying we need to revisit this you know we've had pcs invented since that time we've had other inventions we need to revisit it the process of revising it took 5 years 1990 to 95 was completed under my chairmanship between 96 and 97 um yet what was interesting is that all the new ideas including all the bits about genetics now remember genetic testing only came in in the mid 80s yet by 1993 94 we were writing it into the new recommendations on data protection but what happened was that when we surveyed the countries of the council of europe as they were then to see how many of them were in line or thinking about it we found that there were already more than half the countries of the council of europe which were implementing putting into place the regulations which we're still discussing mm-hmm. so there is a way in which these things um filter through almost by osmosis is it fast enough for my liking no never mm. um can we do better always should we stop never mm. um 
and it's I would like to think also that kind of determination which will uh, see us through right we've it's doing the special rapporteur's job is not easy not only because it's the resources are so poor but also because governments politicians in the EU outside the EU are the same in one thing they tend to go not all of them I don't wish to generalize but a lot of them um, tend to go in for what I call gesture politics look at me I'm doing something about it even if the something is not properly thought through <clears throat> and secondly they also um, tend to um, rush things through and when you do it something in a rush you are bound to make mistakes which is one of the major concerns I have about COVID-19, that some of the solutions which are being introduced are not necessarily thought through and are being done in too much of a rush. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, whether it's an app or whether it's something mandatory, by the time it's properly implemented, you know, this first wave of COVID-19 would probably be over or, or uh, seriously um, subsiding. So, um, I'm not discouraged by I'm, I'm not discouraged by the fact that um, some politicians, I mean, you know, uh, what's the politest term I can find for them? Some politicians are jerks. Some presidents are jerks. Some presidents are some prime ministers not only infringe upon constitutional rights but seem to take a delight in doing so. Some are incredibly badly advised. Some defy science. Some do not move on an evidence base, but especially where they are democracies, let me not talk about countries which are not democracies, but you know, in a democracy, generally the people, the voter gets the government they deserve. Mm -hmm. um, and in this particular case, it will not be the first time that a politician will take a boneheaded decision about something on which they should have moved on an evidence base. Mm -hmm. So. If I go back to your question, should they have read the recommendations and abided by them? Yes, but even if their Minister of Health has read the recommendation and is trying to abide it, you have no guarantee that he will not resign or be fired just because the man in charge or the woman in charge is not as enlightened as he or she should be. Mm -hmm. Which brings me to the question, to a very stupid question, probably, which is how do you decide on where to go for a country visit? Uh, is it, I mean, is there, is there a hidden list somewhere of all the countries where you think that the presidents are specifically interesting or is it because of the uh, well, issues I, I, that are reported or how is this, how is this process happening? No, it's not a stupid question. It's an interesting question. Um, there are it's a I take a three-pronged approach to this right mm -hmm. especially since I have so many so little ammunition I must make sure that what little ammunition I spend wisely right mm -hmm. so the first approach that I take is with the most influential countries because mm -hmm. whether you like it or not some countries are highly influential so mm -hmm. um, let's let's and there are different reasons why they are influential right so why did I carry out a country visit in Germany? Because Germany is respected as a leader in privacy and data protection internationally. And therefore, I want to make sure that the Germans are getting it right 
so that if anybody follows the German model, <laughs> right, they get it right, right? Mm -hmm. And we have, like it or not, 45 other countries. I won't mention the 46th one, which does not, but we have 45 other member states of the Council of Europe, which directly or indirectly, openly or covertly, looks at German standards and privacy and, and data protection and tries to make sure that they're not worse. Mm. Um, but there are other reasons, there are historical mm. reasons, right? Mm. Why did I carry out a visit to the UK? Because the UK, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, because of its history as a colonial power, at one time the largest empire on which the sun never set, um, mm. and uh, you have a fact of life in the Commonwealth. Mm. Each Commonwealth has its leading lawyer, the Attorney General is who he or she is called in many countries. What is the first, what is the first piece of legislation that um, a lawyer in one of those 52, 58 uh, ex-UK colonies looks at? It's UK law. Mm. Right? So if the United Kingdom gets it wrong, I have 52 to 58 countries, depending how you count, following the wrong example. So mm. to me, it's very important that the UK gets it wrong. For exactly the same reason, France is a very important country, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because la francophonie, you have another 39, 40 countries there, mm -hmm. which in one way or another turn to French legislation too, right? So just between the UK and France, right? I'm looking at 100 out of the UN's 193 countries. Mm -hmm. um, if, I, if to those I add, and the 45 countries of uh, the Council of Europe, excluding uh, two countries which I shall not mention, um, I have 145, right? Mm. So um, by concentrating on three countries, I then have others. But then I also have, I try to find out uh, regional champions, right? Mm. Uh, for example, yes, clearly, um, going to Argentina was... Uh, both a strategic decision and a tactical decision, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted to go to an emerging uh, economy, a, mm -hmm. a, a federal state with the size of 50 million people, which is, you know, quite a useful example to have, um, which has also um, signed and ratified the Council of Europe's Convention 108 and brought it into force in June of last year. So, to me, at that moment in time, uh, it's also coming out. You know, you go to Argentina, and like many other ex-military dictatorships, there is the memory there, right? What do you do with the secret police there? What do you do with surveillance there, right? So mm -hmm. that is yet another factor which influences me. Mm -hmm. Asia is, some, is something else. You know? So uh, South Korea, to me, was very important, especially mm -hmm. a country which has openly accepted, for example, that its secret services in the past were meddling even in the power, uh, in the um, acquisition of power uh, system. So there are different reasons as to why I would choose a country. But also because, um, let's face it, it could be the right moment at the right moment in time. Uh, I find that my work is um, very much like stand-up comedy, you know, in the sense that it's all about timing. If I get the in comedy, you must get the timing right. In my work, you must get the timing right. If I can say 
the right word to the right person in the right place at the right time, those dimensions of time, place, and space, which you've heard we talk about in other contexts, are extremely important in getting the message. Because what's mm -hmm. the objective? Um, a special rapporteur does not control an army, does not control an air force, uh, does not control any means of getting people to do the right thing to coercion, and that is mm. correct. We shouldn't coerce people, but I can only persuade a government to do the right thing. And the same way, for example, um, that I believe, uh, you know, a senior UN official who died tragically in Lebanon in 2003, Sergio D'Amelio, was successful in convincing the president of Indonesia to do the right thing and apologize for the war in Indonesia and for, for the war in East Timor, I'm sorry, um, conducted by Indonesia, but also in, um, in pulling out and uh, ensuring the transition to independence happened. That moment of persuasion, right, um, which enabled two people in that particular context, there were more, but I'm just choosing to mention two. Um, one UN official who persuaded the government to the right thing, and the government, which was open, the president in the case, was open to listen to reason and do the right thing, um, is extremely important in the work that we do. So, yes, very often uh, I will also go and visit the country because I judge um, that the people in charge could have their ears open because the circumstances in that country are right and it's like a, a, a fertile a fertile uh, land with the fruit ready for the plucking. Hmm. You can also assume, uh, you know, a contrario sensu, that um, there are some countries which I won't visit because I fear that much as I would like to engage with them and I ask to engage with them, um, my message would be falling on deaf, deaf ears. Yeah. Um... So one follow-up question on this. Um, I, I know that you are not only talking to countries and that you do not only try to convince countries to do the right thing, but you do the same with private industry. Um, so uh, two questions coming out of this, actually. The first one is how to divide your work. So it's priority more into countries or more into global players of private industry. And second, what are your... Uh, your feelings about this at the moment. So do you, are, you, are you happy with the outcome when it comes to convincing private industry and your mandate at the moment? Well, you know, happiness is always a relative term. Yeah, you know, content, uh, the, uh, the, you know, convinced, um, the, uh, positive, take any the, of those, whatever you wish. <laughs> private industry is extremely important mm. and I have made it a point to build bridges with as many major players as possible. Um, and I also try to do that in the most transparent of ways. In other words, I have set up a task force uh, which brings together not only uh, the normal big players like Google, Apple, Microsoft, uh, uh, Facebook, etc but also the non-US-based companies, right? So mm -hmm. when you come to the meetings that I hold twice, three times, four times a year with these very regularly, right? So these are scheduled very regularly in advance. We just had one, uh, we just had one uh, at the end, at the beginning of this month, 
and yet we're going to have a follow-up meeting on the 12th of May. So um, uh, there, what we do, first of all, I've tried to broaden it to include many other major players, including mm -hmm. Deutsche Telekom, including Telefonica, including Huawei, etc. And I sit them around the same table and we try to examine the problems together. And uh, without giving too much away, so one of the areas where I'm working with them at this moment in time is encryption. Do these companies support it? Yes. Do they support the mandate? Yes. Do they support it in, in various ways? Yes. Um, do they report back on privacy initiatives that they're taking? Yes. Mm. Um, are they sometimes, are they always in competition with each other? Depending on their business model, yes. You know, because mm. Apple's business model is very different to Google's business model, mm. right? Which is very different to Deutsche Telekom's business model. So, um, what what I am doing there is I am trying to listen carefully to what they have to say about surveillance and act upon it uh, to try to achieve an equitable. Uh, so I would say that um, more than anything, it's not by deciding that the countries take priority or the or the companies take priority. To me, companies, governments. They're all stakeholders um, in the same, uh, on the same planet. It's more the theme which can be more uh, urgent. So the urgency that I ascribe arises out of the theme. Um, medical data is one thing, is a very important theme. Surveillance is a very important theme. Children and privacy is an important theme. Big data is an important theme. And the companies are all there in all of those. Mm -hmm. The intelligence services may be in all of those to a greater or lesser extent, as are law enforcement agencies. The governments are all there. So actually, when I have to, if I meet the government uh, minister tomorrow, <clears throat> I have to tell them about all of this. I have to make sure that they're on track. Do they have a data protection law? Do they have privacy protection from the constitution? Do they have an independent data protection authority? Because they might have a law, but not an independent authority. Do they have a proper law for oversight of surveillance? Do they have a, an independent authority for the oversight of surveillance? Mm -hmm. How are they getting on with the companies? Um, do they uh, arbitrarily suddenly decide to shut down a company, even though they may be, that company may be providing an essential service to hundred million of its population. Let's remember that some of the services offered by the companies are relied upon in many countries for essential services. Um, there are judges, prosecutors, police officers, businesses, small farmers, small traders who rely on certain apps uh, for the day-to-day -day business to the extent that a country cannot move along without them, right? So it's a very complex situation, uh, one which, you know, as Einstein would say, things should be made as simple as possible, but no more. And this is typically a case of complexity. So the companies to me are important players together with other important players. But the first thing that I look at is thematically. So one of the themes that I'm tackling at this moment in time is that of encryption. And I'm tackling that with the companies and with some data protection authorities, and I hope to be able to take that forward in a way which governments around the world will find useful. Yeah. 
plenty of very, very interesting uh, remarks and questions. Again, let me just uh, select one of them because you mentioned now data protection authorities several times uh, in, in your reply. Uh, so whenever I speak to any given data protection authority in the world, um, although they have a workforce which is, I don't know, 150 times more than you have, the, 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 the complaint is always the same, which is so many problems, so many infringements, so many developing technologies, etc., etc. not enough resources, not enough personnel, not enough whatever, so that uh, the average data protection authority, in my assessment, uh, diplomatically uh, argues that uh, the oversight system they should be responsible for is not really working. Um, my question to you then therefore would be, uh, do you think that uh, on a European or on a global level, uh, we need to rethink uh, the role of data protection authorities? Or do you think um, that the role is 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 working prop? I mean that there are problems in details, but overall uh, the role is um, is is working properly. Um, I think that the problem lies not with the concept of having a data protection authority. Mm -hmm. I think that the situation is changing. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, and it has certainly changed over the past five years that I've been a uh, UN Special Rapporteur. Um, let's look at a few facts and let the facts answer your question, right? Firstly, 193 countries, one of our friends, Graham Greenleaf, has counted between 125 and 133 of them which have some form of privacy law, right? Now, which automatically means that you have about 60, you know, mm -hmm. that's almost a third of the UN, which doesn't even have a privacy law, mm -hmm. right? So we must be conscious that we're talking about a multi-tiered and multi-speed system. Mm -hmm. People are getting there, wherever there is, at a different speed. Um, now, part of the question that we should be asking ourselves, therefore, is, is a data, an independent data, the protection authority, one of the goals, right? Mm -hmm. The holy grail of, especially those countries which are asking me, which is the best model for us to follow uh, mm -hmm. in order to get there. Um, out of these, we should remember that out of these 120, uh, 130 countries which have some form of privacy law, 70 maximum have a data protection authority which even approaches our notion of independence. Now, yeah. it's useless being independent. I am independent. But it's useless being independent if you don't have resources. So mm. it's not only independence which must be assured, but resources must be assured. I find that the situation in resources is changing. Mm. Right? There are now increasingly data protection authorities with four, five, six, and 700 stuff mm. right um yes those tend to be in countries like the united kingdom mm. like like mexico but even um even other countries who are starting off relatively late i've just you know uh, spoken with the director of one dpa who went from zero to 200 in one year right mm. so i'm seeing lots of encouraging signs of more 
um, of more resources being allocated. Um, across the EU, many DPAs are having the resources increased in different ways, in different to different extents, uh, in terms of human resources. But I've seen increase, not decrease. The work has increased, yes, but um, I see this as being evolution, right? Um, that the model continues to evolve. I'm actually far more worried, not about um, data protection authorities, etc., because like it or not, the GDPR will continue to be one of those European exports uh, which will continue to have an enormous impact around the world. Um, it was very interesting that um, one and a half, almost two years ago, when I was going around countries in Asia, Australasia, etc., the first question was not the UN, even though they knew that I was there wearing my blue helmet. Um, the first question, if I asked them, what are you working on? Everybody said GDPR around the world, right? And I can introduce you to many um, Chinese and, and um, American companies where if you ask them, what standard are you working to? And they tell me GDPR. Not because they are compelled to, mm. but because they think it's the wisest way to go. So GDPR is an export from the EU, mm. uh, which is helping in my work. I cannot say that it doesn't help because it gives a standard, as the Council of Europe provides a standard. Mm. Um, I'm actually more concerned about, and I think to finish on the um, DPA model, um, the DPA model will continue to evolve and certain situations like um, Cambridge Analytica, etc., will continue to show how important it is that they are well-resourced in order to be able to tackle that. And I think that issues like um, interference with elections and links to things like Cambridge Analytica um, will continue to uh, increase the funding and resourcing of data protection authorities. I'm actually concerned by the much slower speed that is ev evidenced in the area of oversight of surveillance and the oversight of intelligence services. Um, there, the speed is much slower and the resourcing is lower, right? Um, one of the problems we have there is that in many countries, not all, you have some form of oversight which is provided by a parliamentary committee, mm -hmm. but the parliamentary committee, by definition, right, is an in, inadequate measure, right? Um, the parliamentarians don't necessarily know um, intelligence work well. They don't necessarily know where to look for things, and more importantly, they don't have the time. They're all doing, they're all busy doing other things too. And what you need, I'm persuaded that the model, um, pick a hybrid model if you wish, but the French, the Dutch, the British, to mention but three examples, the Belgians on the way too, um, have adopted models which institute a strong, fully independent entity which sits outside the parliament, which sits outside the government and has very strong powers to carry out oversight. So to give you an example, right? Um, over the past six weeks, we've seen the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, create 
a new committee you know the commission i think they've called it for um well the precise name escapes me at this moment in time but one of its tasks is to have oversight of the COVID 19 surveillance in israel um is it enough i hope to investigate this further but on the face of it i'd be surprised if that parliamentary committee um, could be as effective in oversight as a full-time independent oversight agency. I'm not saying that parliamentary committees should not exist. I'm saying that their role should be a complementary one to a full-time independent agency. Um, and this is where we cannot take COVID-19 out of context, right? Uh, when you're looking at the measures which are introduced for COVID-19, you must also ask yourself, not only is there testing in the country, but are there also independent oversight mechanisms in the country when it comes to surveillance and secret services, etc., which could help reassure the public that if any, for example, uh, move mobility data is utilized, it is utilized within a very tight set of safeguards. Mm. Absolutely, and I think one of the uh, one of the really challenging aspects of this is that when it comes to oversight, that you need to have people who are technology savvy enough to understand what the technologies are really doing, um, and and you can't really expect this from members of from an average member of a parliament because uh, they are full time politicians, obviously, and they are not IT experts, and even in data protection authorities, I think in many cases there are quite some lawyers there, but not too many uh, who are really competent in the in the IT related parts of the problem. And, and then again, the, the private industry comes into the game. So as you certainly uh, heard last week and read like I did that uh, Apple and Google are entering the COVID-19 app scene now in, in April by providing platforms. Um, which is a very interesting move. Um, I, however, I think uh, it's not very easy to assess that from a technological point of view. And not only this Apple-Google movement, any other uh, app that is developed in any of the, uh, of the hundreds of states at the moment that are, that are doing this, each of them has a technological impact that is very difficult to assess. And I, I find it very, uh, very uh, important therefore that you highlight so often uh, the technology part of your work right that, that how important this is and you mentioned already twice today that encryption is something that you're really dealing with um, quite intensely and I assume that this is one of the lessons that you learned from from some of the cases we were facing you mentioned already Cambridge Analytica twice you might have mentioned uh, I do it now Snowden perhaps for example as an example um, and so the technology part is important and it's difficult to assess, right? Um, let's see <laughs> how successful we are in this, um, how successful we are. Joe, I don't want to take too much of your time. I really appreciate that you have so much um, already invested into this. I'm just watching whether there are any questions coming from the people who are uh, out there on the internet uh, and wishing to ask a question. If this is not the case, I would like to come close to an end by asking you um, what you would expect uh, to uh, make COVID change in your professional life. So I assume, as you, you mentioned already this, that you will uh, put this into the focus of your next report in, in, in autumn. 
but how exactly are you going to do this? I mean, you will probably not sit um, at your desk and start thinking about what might have changed because of COVID, but the approach might be a little bit different. Would you like to tell us a little bit about how the, the approach will be? Okay, yeah. so the first thing that I would be doing is I, I plan to set the scene mm -hmm. by providing two essential elements of context. Mm -hmm. um, essential element number one, that you need to have a proper law with setting up, establishing um, an independent oversight authority for surveillance of any sort, mm -hmm. right? Um, the second thing is I would be making reference to the, um, to the recommendation on health-related data, right? Mm -hmm. Emphasizing that those should be introduced as part of setting up, creating the right ecosystem. In any country, that you have a strong set of laws governing surveillance and a strong set of laws governing health-related data, we might actually, of course, need to convene the health group once again, Nicolaus, in order to see what COVID-19, or we should then call it pandemic clauses, yeah. we need we need yeah. to. So pleasures yet to come, right? Yeah. Um, Indeed, because if I don't want to tell too much about internal debates, but the word pandemic never, never was discussed in, in this, uh, to the best of my knowledge, in this group. So no. nobody had this on his radar screen. Nobody had it on it. No, because, because you see, um, some people like myself were expecting um, some governments to do that, which they never did. You yeah. know, I'm trying to remember whether it's, I think it was sometime between... Uh, 2014 and 2016, that Gros Harlem, the, the ex the uh, the ex prime minister of Norway, had mm -hmm. prepared a study on on uh, pandemics and the measures that should be taken, and um, I regret to say that they were not. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I I put my understanding of pandemic was in the debates that we have always within the exceptions in public health right yeah. we have what are the public health exceptions um but clearly clearly we need to uh, put on more detail i think mm -hmm. we need to add more detail from what we've learned um then what i plan to do as i said will be in two stages um, stage one is fact assessment and the kind of state of the union assessment um this is what these are the measures taken in different states which could infringe privacy. And these are the measures which have been introduced which could partially protect privacy. Um, and then I'd make some basic recommendations. I won't say which uh, for now because I'm, you know, I'm still in the process of form, forming them. Um, and that would be more or less about as much as far as I would be prepared to go by October. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But by this time next year, sometime between April and the end of June of next year, I would plan to come up with a second report on the more detailed set of recommendations, more carefully analyzing all the measures taken. Of course, producing something which would assess things in terms of prévu par la loi, provided for by law, mm. necessary and proportionate in a democratic society. Mm. So that 
would be the context in which I would be taking COVID-19. Yeah. And final question from my side, what will be the next country to visit? Do you know that already? Is it official already? Can you announce this? Well, I, I can, I can, uh, can I announce it? That's good. I can say that the government has agreed and that we're in discussions with, in discussions with the government uh, about the dates, etc. Et well, the dates are set, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, the dates, 16th to the 30th of November, are well established. They have been established for several months in this country. Mm -hmm. I will tell you it's Africa. I will tell you it's okay. Sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. And you will notice that up till now I've had one official visit in Asia, one official visit in, uh, mm -hmm. in South America, one official visit in North America, and three official visits in Europe for the reasons which I spelled out before. Mm -hmm. uh, so the next official visit will be in Sub-Saharan Africa. Okay, so that is something which I personally very much appreciate because the, the debate in, in, in Africa and in some of the African countries about data protection is very, very interesting and the Europeans can learn a lot from them. Indeed, extremely, absolutely. extremely yes. interesting. I, I would just yeah. say that uh, I have carried out an unofficial visit in Ghana mm. last year, in June of last year. I have just returned. I was nearly trapped. I returned directly into covid 19 induced quarantine from south africa mm -hmm. and uh once again as you say the discussions are extremely interesting and i have previously also done quite a lot of work with tunisia with morocco uh, above the sahara and i've just also come back from qatar not in africa but just to the side mm -hmm. so um, there's a lot going on a yeah. lot of debate and um as you say so much that you can learn from uh, but once again, I say a good idea is a good idea is a good idea mm. uh, because, you know, there is such a thing. Some people will tell you African solutions for African problems, right? Um, but in reality, is there such a thing as an exclusively African problem on the Internet or an exclusively European problem? I find very often that... Um, there are so many problems that we have in common that one of the really good things that the UN can do and does do is learn about good practices in one country and try to transplant them to another country. And whether it's the African country which came up with the idea first or the European or, or the Asian one, it's not important. The important thing is that we pay great attention to the mistakes and successes of each other. Yeah, there is one question that came in now, which is really striking. There's somebody asking whether you see any opportunities of using contact tracing apps in post-COVID-19 time. So I assume that this is something that you did not explicitly mention in how far these um, apps could be then used for further purposes and whether this should be part of the assessment at the moment. And I Yes, yeah. yes. in fact, I haven't mentioned it here today, mm. but I've mentioned it in other interviews I've given to Reuters, to the Wall Street Journal, and others. Um, I'm extremely concerned. Mm -hmm. In fact, that is one of the major concerns, because you see, how do things happen in practice? How do they happen in reality? Um, in reality, what happens is this. A government either develops the software internally or goes out on the open market and buys it. Package. In fact, there are companies, including Israeli companies, including Italian companies, including other companies, which will readily sell a government a product which does contract tracing. The problem, of course, is that 
uh, once COVID is over, the ability, the technical ability to, to contact tracing remains there. Yeah. And contact tracing um, in a democracy with the right safeguards is one thing. But contact tracing in a democracy without the right safeguards is a nightmare. And the contact tracing in a country which is not a, a, a democracy is, you know, horrend a horrendous nightmare. Um, because it gives the government, it gives the ruler the ability to find out who has been talking to whom. So a whole bunch of human rights, which are impacted by a lack of privacy, which include freedom of association, which include freedom of expression, which include um, freedom of religion, all of those are put at risk. If a government can then use technology which was bought for one purpose, for another purpose. Absolutely. And in order to make sure, and this is why my uh, October 2020 report to the UN General Assembly will include, and will start off with an introduction on safeguards for surveillance, you must have at law a well-resourced agency which is capable of walking into a secret service anytime without warning and having the technical ability to check, mm. let me see what you're up to, are you using this product? And if they find, as we found in some countries that I carried out country visits to in the past, before I was special reporter, if we find that a country has carried out 20,000, 28,000 illegal interceptions, mm. or millions of interceptions of 20,000 individuals, um, without proper authorization, without the right safeguards in place, uh, then you find that you're in a really serious problem. And that is why the technology is very useful, very attractive, but at the same time, without the right safeguards and the right remedies in place, we cannot look forward to uh, a future where we would be truly free. Yes, so this is a very, very good final remark in my personal assessment. Is there anything, Joe, that I should have asked you that I didn't ask that you want to add? I, I don't think so, Nicolas. I'm sure that uh, as soon as we finish, we'll both think of something that yeah, we should have to order. Certainly, yeah, but yeah. hopefully we'll have other occasions yeah. to chat. Indeed, yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time and all your effort and all the work that you are doing, not only today, but for so many years now in the field. You are really one of the one of the leaders in the in this sector. Thank you for your time and all your efforts. I really thank appreciate you, Nicolas. And I just I just remind you and everybody that what I do I don't do alone, and I wouldn't be able to achieve anything without the assistance of so many people around the world, including yourself. So thank you too. Thank you so much. Have a good evening. Good thank you. Good night. Good. Goodbye. Good night. Bye.